0: Really pleased to be joined on 14th and G today by our firm founders, Bruce Melman and David Castagnetti. A lot has transpired in the last two weeks, uh, and, and much more has transpired since the last time we were together, uh, where the topic was Bruce's slide deck, hunting black swans. Well, the ultimate black swan has hit the United States uh, and, and the larger world uh, through the global pandemic of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and we are in the what looks to be the beginnings of the outbreak here and the government's response. So why don't we start with where we've been? And I'll just briefly recap the congressional response uh, on, uh, on the first week of March. Uh, the House and Senate passed a supplemental appropriations bill uh, totaling eight point three billion dollars in emergency appropriations. That was followed up by the House Pelosi authored Families First Act. The House passed that on March 14th, the Senate on March 19th. And this past week we witnessed a, a huge round of Capitol Hill sausage making when the Senate passed the CARES Act, a $2.3 trillion dollar, dollar stimulus bill, which the Senate passed on the 25th, and the House just passed on March 27th. So The big question as we go into uh, this next week with both uh, House and Senate recessed, probably for at least three weeks, a lot of the talk in the air is about package four, what that looks like, what's still to be done. Bruce, uh, how do you see the state of play?
1: Dismal. Uh, I wish the 14th and G were being taped at 14th and G instead of uh, multiple secure locations around the city. For what you just asked, I do think there's going to be a fourth and maybe potentially even a fifth package. I wish there weren't. uh, But everything one sees about the anticipated lines of how the virus will continue to disperse, as well as the economic impacts and the difficulty of taking an economy that was uh, moving at 90 miles an hour and coming to near a dead stop. You know, the, the, the third stimulus package was about preventing heads from hitting windshields with that kind of abrupt stop. But to get the car moving again is probably going to need help. And there are a lot of things that have been discussed, you know, the SNAP, which is food stamps and and food assistance for poor folks. The states clearly need more money. Healthcare workers, systems and agencies are going to quickly run out of money, let alone even more dire. They may run out of equipment. The insurance industry and mortgage service industries, uh, maybe the Fed can help take care of, but they're clearly at high risk and they weren't part of the last package. Uh, getting more broadband. Clearly, we've known about telehealth and and distance education, but they've kind of been more notional. And now they're extraordinarily necessary and long discussed digital divides, but never solved them. We need to now. Uh, You'll hear about payroll taxes, which can have a good stimulus effect on on, uh, larger businesses. Uh, The U.S. Postal Service, God bless their hearts, keep doing their job, but they're going to run out of money. Um, there's some people and businesses missed in the third package, like college students and nonprofits are, are going to be at uh, at great risk and high demand.
2: If I can um, just pick up on that for a second, too, I think Bruce did a great job of outlining uh, kind of what Congress has to deal with here over the next few months. The other couple of pieces I would add is also as a reminder, as a placeholder, Mrs. Pelosi has already kind of dropped the fourth stimulus bill that adds to that discussion and many of the items that Bruce listed are there, but there's also some other really big ticket items like infrastructure, uh, that type of issue that I think the Democrats certainly will be pushing a lot and it might be a time to get that big bill done in order to jumpstart the economy as well. So you
0: saw, and Castro, I'll, I'll ask you. You saw in in the first uh, in the first two packages, you saw the House really take the lead. It, McConnell took the pin back for Senate Republicans uh, on Package Three, the CARES Act. There was uh, there was bipartisan negotiation there, but obviously the Senate led. How and we're watching these players uh, really interact between Secretary Mnuchin, Speaker Pelosi, and then the leaders McConnell and Schumer in the Senate. How does that it seems to me we're going to see a much more collaborative process. uh, And I don't mean collaborative in the sense uh, in the positive sense, but folks are really going to have to listen to one another to get this uh, to get this package done. How do you see those players interacting in in uh,
2: in this process going forward? Uh, Good question, Dean. Just just as a reminder to folks, I would say dealing with the coronavirus issue, dealing with TARP, dealing with 9/11, Congress and the administration feel but finds a way to come together to make big things happen at those moments, and I think everyone rose to their uh, their you know rose to to their occasion to seize the moment. And and each person obviously has a slightly different priority. And certainly, you know, Secretary Mnuchin was kind of the conduit in bringing a lot of these pieces together and speaking for the administration. Certainly Mrs. Pelosi and, and Mr. Schumer were in constant contact, whether Mrs. Pelosi was cutting the deal with Mnuchin or Mr. Schumer was kind of driving the debate uh, on the Senate side. They were in constant communication, and certainly Mr. McConnell had to protect uh, his leaders. uh, So that that give and take really did exist to produce something, hopefully, that helps get us us through this process uh, while we all not only maintain our social distancing, but hopefully it's enough of a stimulation to the economy to keep it moving uh, in the right direction. I think as you look at, you know, Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin came out very quick to say, I want direct dollars in people's pockets. And that's kind of where the the debate ended. Uh, Mr. Schumer and Mrs. Pelosi uh, were very clear that they wanted to protect workers in this transition, not only getting them direct dollars, but in terms of how big companies were going to have access to government funds, making sure there weren't layoffs, there weren't stock buybacks. That was an important piece of the debate for the Democrats. And certainly Mr. McConnell was trying to do his best to bring some financial stability to corporate America as well. In the meantime, kind of working with the politics of his own caucus, but yet knowing and understanding that at the end of the day, he had to cut a deal. And it's a real tribute, I think, to, to everyone that they came together where the Senate bill passes... 96 to nothing and the House bill passes on a voice vote. That to me is really showing leadership and hopefully the ability to kind of move the country forward again. It's
0: really really, though also the result of a process that, and I think we're gonna see this on package four, uh, an additive process and not uh, and much less your typical uh, house senate negotiation where it's a narrowing of priorities it's it's been much more well just pile that on and that on too and you end up at 2.3 trillion dollars and uh, a bill like that gets a big head of steam
2: and i totally agree right it's it, it was about adding to the pie all the time i just i put my ice cream on my vanilla ice cream on top of the the apple pie, and then I put the whipped cream, and then I put the cherry uh, on top. Is the way I look at it. But yes, that's ultimately what happened. And you know, there's a time and a place to to kind of worry about uh, deficits and deficit spending. And then there's a time and a place where we have to get past that. And fortunately, hopefully, our economy is strong enough to sustain the. The, the impetus of money that comes into play.
1: Let me just say, I want to shelter in place with the Castagnetis after that uh, analogy. <laughs> Good eating. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, Casto, you alluded, and uh, I'll I'll just throw this out there, but you know the the players here are also. Uh, all deeply involved in an election year. It's a presidential election year. You've got House, Senate, and obviously the president running for re-election. Let's start with the dynamics uh, of those races. It seems it seems the president uh, for him for him has gotten fairly high marks on on his handling of the crisis. How do you see the, how do you see the president's handling of the crisis and you've also now got a presumptive Democratic nominee, uh, and former Vice President Biden, and how has he
2: performed? Has he helped
0: himself or hurt himself uh, through this crisis?
2: Good question. Um, you know, I, to, to pick up on your point on the president's numbers during this crisis, he's actually, his numbers have, his approval numbers have gone up in terms of handling the, this situation. I, you know, personally, I find that hard to believe, because you're just seeing what's going on. And even this morning, kind of, the different communication about, do we stop travel to New York and Connecticut? Though so what's happened, um, which potentially can work to the uh, vice president Biden's advantage, is there, a, there there's no, you can't do big rallies anymore, right? And, and if you're the president or you're Bernie Sanders, big rallies were the core of kind of who they are and motivating people that wasn't necessarily the vice president's strength. And now that he's, you know, basically running his campaign out of his home office, that allows him to control the media a little bit more, control the message that he's delivering to his supporters, uh, his contributor targeted social media perspective, right? It's certainly incredibly difficult for the vice president to break out into the the national media right now because the president and the virus is consuming so much of the news that he has to play a little bit of a different game and kind of deal direct to consumer, as I would say, through the social media space and and see if he can kind of amplify his message and his ability to continue to fundraise.
1: You know, look, I'd add Biden, the biggest risk was always Live microphone. You know, for all of his service and years of, of experience, he was a human gas machine on the campaign trail. At this point, there is no value for him. I mean, he's 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 going to say what he's going to say, but I don't think it hurts him to kind of lay low for a little while. The the election will increasingly be a referendum on how President Trump has handled the coronavirus, uh, how the administration has performed, whether with competence and courage. or or inconsistency and leading from behind. That's what very much folks will judge on. Number two, we're sure looking like we're gonna be in a recession by Q2 that's gonna last through the election. And as we know from analyses that we and others have done, presidents struggle to get reelected amidst recessions. There may be a big asterisk on this one. The last thought I had about Vice President Biden, assuming he indeed is the nominee, is one could really imagine by the summer, the attractiveness of Governor Andrew Cuomo or or even NIH director Andrew Fauci as as a vice presidential nominee. You know, that both of them are clearly distinguishing themselves in how they're uh, handling with resolve, radical honesty, the public pressures and communications challenges. But the vice president, the former vice president, has already committed to uh, it must be a woman. And I don't think he can unring the identity politics promise. So it's a shame for him that he's taken some things off the table that could be pretty attractive right now.
2: Uh, pardon me?
1: So uh, on ticket. Uh, yeah, that's where or, I
2: was going, <laughs> I like the thought of two Italian-Americans in the mix. Right? <laughs> One thing, Dean, too, to think about, though, is as we kind of get into the election, like the process, like, you know, we, we I, I talked a little bit about no rallies, but also you can't have people going door to door, right? So, the, I, again, that's a different way to organize and a little bit. Uh, as you look at especially down-ballot races in the House and the Senate, to kind of go back to your uh, McConnell-Schumer-Pelosi-McCarthy conversation, you know, h- how do those folks get reelected? And when they're calling voters, are they calling people 60 and over to ask them for their vote? Or are they calling them to say, hey, are you healthy? Is there anything I can help you with? Right? There's a different way that they're going to have to approach this campaign, right? In some ways, the the 25 year old making the phone call to the 60 year old is almost, uh, you know, kind of Instacart like, you know, can I go to the grocery store and pick something up for you that you don't have? And, and that changes. And, the, and fundraising certainly is going to be down because these candidates can't go out. And most importantly, just how do you, how does Biden become the official nominee of the Democratic Party? Right. There's still that process that has to take place. And we we have delayed primaries right? Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Ohio, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, have all delayed their primaries. How do we get to that number so that he can, he can be the official nominee? Or conversely, a, in an opportunity situation, Ohio and Alaska are going all mail-in ballot for their primaries, right? Is, is that what we're going to see down the future, that elections will be done by mail-in ballot? I don't know. That's a it's a possibility. We'll see how it works. But there's some opportunities here uh, as well.
1: Well, you know, to, to pick up on that, Dean, one of the seemingly middle to long term trends of this is it's accelerating the future. To David's point, campaigns have been trending already from knocking on doors. In the old days, you knock on doors in neighborhoods, unbelievably imprecise. By the by the Bush and Obama campaigns, you knock on the known doors of, of undecided or, or persuadable voters or people you needed to, to get out. You no longer knocked on every door. You knew whose door you were knocking on. Increasingly, you don't knock on doors. You, you DM or you send messages that are, that are digitally shared or, that, or you go via Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter. So that was the future of campaigning. Likewise, the future of work is here. The future of work increasingly was distributed, increasingly was technologically enabled. The future of education, we all know, is going to have to be more personalized, more digitally delivered, and ideally lower cost. It's kind of amazing when you think about when we were all kids in school. Oh, hell, Casto, though, when he was a kid, it was uh, it was duck and cover drills. But when we were kids <laughs> in school. <laughs> no, it's just,
2: it was it was blackboards and chalk, and we had to wash the be. The there you go. So.
1: <laughs> when we were kids, think about this. You always would have fire drills. You know, it'd be and you'd you'd get in line, you'd walk outside. Why? Well, you needed to be prepared. We're, I guess, lucky enough that we're old enough that we didn't live through the time when uh, they have active shooter drills, which is a more current thing. But here's a question: How many schools that you're aware of say one day each semester we're gonna have a do school from home in case there is a natural disaster or pandemic or I mean, so many pretty foreseeable things. Why wouldn't they have trained teachers and students on how to be ready to learn from home in case they needed to for a week? You know, I mean, I hate to do this because every kid in America, well, they won't listen to this, but if they do, they'll hate me. It begs the question, why do we have snow days? If it's a really bad snow, instead of "there is no school today," they ought to have the ability to flip the switch and say, "Hey, we're doing it, working from, learning from home today."
2: You're gonna get rotten tomatoes thrown at you for that one, Bruce.
0: (laughs) Bruce, that's an that's an excellent point. It's it's one of uh, many sort of uh, lessons we're gonna have to take from this crisis. What I and I think we can all uh, envision as we pick through the wreckage of what has and what hasn't happened why we were so why our medical system was so unprepared for a surge, all these things. There will be a US commission on the response to the COVID-19 virus. Bruce, what are some of those what are some of those lesson, other lessons you think we're gonna we're gonna take away from this? I know it's early stages, but we can we can already see the surge capacity for hospitals uh probably
1: uh, leading the pack. Well look I mean it's it's there literally was a playbook on pandemics. Uh, they will update the playbook although the playbook that existed got a lot of the things right. I think uh, you're gonna see some broad systemic changes and our new uh, quarterly analysis is going to try to dive into some of them. We've spent two or three decades focusing to maximize efficiency. And whether it's uh, systemically or more narrowly with hospitals, we're going to see more focus on resilience and surge capacity. Uh, we've increasingly become interdependent, and the deglobal changes we're already seeing will have a greater focus on self-sufficiency. Investment has has long been more short-term and shareholder-minded, and I think this will play into a little bit more of the stakeholder, long-term-minded. You know, we, we've we've operated saying it's a market economy, but if if Crazy events happen. Well, then we'll look to rescues and stimuluses and bailouts. You know, this century now we've had three in 20 years. I think we're going to see an effort to look at social insurance and more paid-in programs. To me, the the, the thing that was most revealed, though, uh, and that I'm that will be the the biggest challenge. But it fits with the themes we've been talking over the last couple of years about a decade of reform ahead. Is The safety net sale. Going into this, here is data we knew. We knew that 40% of Americans said they couldn't afford an unexpected $400 expense. They just got one. We knew that 27.9 million non elderly lacked health insurance. Suddenly, that's a huge hit. We knew there were 550,000 homeless folks, big vector at this point, and risk. We knew there's a million in assisted living, but assisted living was designed for the opposite of the reality they're facing. We knew 21.3 million Americans lacked adequate broadband, and suddenly you need broadband if you want to keep learning or keep working. We knew over half the small businesses didn't have a month of cash reserve. We knew 24% of U.S. civilian workers didn't have paid sick leave. Pandemics, weirdly, we didn't put it in our black hunting black swans slide deck. Because it's not a particularly black swan. Everybody knew a pandemic was a risk. There's countless reports and some pretty fantastic movies uh, envisioning exactly what types of things we're seeing. Only most of the movies have a deadlier uh, pandemic. We failed to follow the playbook, but we also revealed a lot of uh, a lot of failures that we always knew there were there. We just Didn't worry about them. And and now they're the biggest fishers.
2: I I just, I I think Bruce does a great job of of outlining that and talking a lot. The other thing I I would ask, even just on a much more micro level is how do we gather socially as a society anymore? Are there going to be concerts? Are there going to be sporting events that take place? What about just as simple as going down the street and going to church? Like what, what happens Kind of in that space moving forward, or conversely, but to pick up on Bruce's education point. I mean, uh, Bruce and I are very fortunate; our, our children are, are at small liberal arts colleges, and you know their class sizes are you know 15, 20 people. But what happens if you go into the University of North Carolina and you have a hundred-person class that takes place? Do do institutions have to think about? What they're doing in a in a post pandemic world, I don't know. It's certainly on a short term basis. I think Bruce has two children learning at home right now, right? So they're they're a they're, they're actually three. Excuse me, You have a high school student as well.
1: They're sleeping at home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think those are also just some real micro challenges that society has uh, moving forward as well.
1: Although, you know, I'll take that on slightly. You got good. Certainly, there are a lot of lessons that we're going to need to learn. At the end of the day, it sure feels, though, at least this pandemic is going to be a lot more transmissible, but only modestly more lethal than the flu. People are still going to go to restaurants. People are still going to go to church. Classes are still going to operate. I think what we're going to need is we're going to probably start as this country and as a nation, as a world, spending more on vaccine research. We're going to have more plans in place so that, you know, if and when there are outbreaks, they're more likely to get noticed and folks are more likely to prepare for remedial action. But thankfully, this one's not unduly deadly. The challenge with this one is just we both were underprepared in so many ways. And then we, as a nation, particularly, massively fumbled the response. If you take a look at South Korea, they were hyper-competent in the response. They didn't have to shut down their country. They had a ton of testing that rolled out early, and part of the reason is because in 2015 with MERS, they screwed up, but MERS had some helpful things like people, uh, there weren't, it wasn't asymptomatic asymptomatic transmission. You knew that if the, the sick people were pretty clearly sick and you could quickly separate and quarantine. Those folks here, it's harder to do, but they've uh, made it through. Singapore is doing very well. Hong Kong's doing well. China took an insanely repressive approach and you can't really believe what they say about their data. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, they've they've demonstrated what a totalitarian autocracy can do with the will to address some of these things. Uh, I, In my mind, we're going to see better prep and we're going to see more focus on on uh, safety net failures and inequalities as opposed to. Uh, there won't be restaurants, there won't be classrooms, there won't be church.
0: Well, you guys have made—I uh, I will say, Castro, you brought up the University of North Carolina, and uh, the, the the saving grace of this virus is it ended the worst <laughs> basketball season we've had in <laughs> years. So I'm looking, I'm looking at that silver lining. Uh, you guys have made a lot of predictions. I like to I like to end these uh, with predictions, so I'll ask a more immediate one. A, a trillion dollars is is a 13 digit number uh, is package for 13 digits uh, over. or under? <laughs>
1: well, that's easy. Uh, I- so it's under 13. Uh, good Lord. If we're at 10 trillion dollars, <laughs> uh, the virus has mutated and, and, and the world is coming to an end. Uh, look, to 2.2 trillion that we saw when you look at what the Federal Reserve can and will do is closer to maybe seven trillion dollars in overall spend. My own beliefs are number one, it massively depends. Show me what the state of the virus, what the state of the economy is. If the if the extraordinary challenges that New York City and the state of New York are going through become the same challenges that 10 other states are going through, you have a very different feel. Then if warm weather and, and the final Abbott and other testing de- deployment and, and PPE, personal protective equipment for hospital workers, finally gets going, all the things we should have been doing when it was happening in China, we may be able to see uh, you know, a, a sense that it's more about recovery than about continuing to kind of keep the patient alive. That's a huge question. If things are truly horrible still in a month, then Congress will be looking for another trillion or two, and, and it will be large majorities. If we're on a road to recovery, thanks to warm weather and improvements in testing and other things, it will be a trillion or less package with more uh, more noise on the ideological wings. That's one of the features. David made the point. He was totally right. For everybody who wants to complain, why did Congress take so long? It took them a month after Lehman's collapse to do TARP. It took Uh, arguably six months or five and a half months after Katrina for Katrina legislation to happen, these guys in roughly 10 days put more money into the economy on a 96 to nothing vote than has ever happened in the history of the country. The next package probably is a trillion dollars, um, but it's also not 96 to nothing. The right wing will be making a lot more noise about we are making government too big. We're incentivizing people to not work. We're undermining the recovery. The left wing will make a lot of noise that we need to stop bailing out uh, big corporations and privatizing gains and socializing losses. Politics will rear its head on this next fourth package unless stuff's looking so bad that that we continue to feel like it's a matter of keeping the economy from from dying.
2: My assessment on this is, I think it's gonna be around one three, one four trillion. I think there'll be an infrastructure piece that's added to it because it's part of a jobs uh, jobs recovery package that, that will move forward. And the rest of the, and the majority of the other piece will be to take care of health care workers that need reimbursement. Uh, it feels like 13, the right number plus, uh, plus uh, with a plus up. And in one point to remember, it's about people. It's about that safety and the health of people. It's about people creating jobs. It's about people being able to go back to the grocery store and buy paper towels. And most importantly, it's about parents being able to protect and make sure that their children are safe.
0: Well, Bruce Melman, David Castagnetti, I I join you both in hoping our next 14th and G is done from 14th and G. And uh, (laughs) thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: Dean, thanks for having us. Thanks, Dean.